Well, this morning we are starting a brand new series that I'm excited about. And to do that, turn to Titus chapter 1. We don't get to do a lot of stuff in Titus, so I'm pretty excited about that. And then Ephesians chapter 1 as well. And we're calling this series The Christian Atheist. Now, I wish I was smart enough to come up with that clever of a title on my own, but I did not, in fact. But I was smart enough to steal it from someone else. So, the idea behind this, and it might seem like a bit of an oxymoron, but the reality is, is that 74% of all Americans claim to believe in God. 74%, that's actually dropped a lot, but still, 74% is an insane uh, amount. That's such a huge majority of a population that it should really be pretty exciting to us because when we look back, it was 120 people who were hiding for fear. They were afraid that the Romans were going to come and to kill them and destroy them. So 120 people are hiding out in a room and that 120 people become filled with the power of God they become filled with a boldness that propels them out of the upper room into all of the nations, and they end up overcoming the Roman Empire that is doing everything it can to kill and to destroy the Jesus movement. If 120 people that are poor and powerless can do that, what can 236 million people who have all of the wealth and all of the power in the most influential nation on the face of the earth do. Think about what could 236 million people do if we saw what 120 people could do? Uh, the answer to that is we may never know. Because while 236 million Americans claim to believe in God, the way they live their life says that they don't actually believe in God. That's what it means is a Christian atheist is someone who says, yes, I believe in God, but then they live their life in a way that looks as if there is no God that they believe in. And God actually talks about this in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. Paul's writing, and he says about people like this, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, that's not a life verse right there, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. That's pretty harsh words. That's like, Paul, can you encourage me a little bit this morning, maybe? I'm kind of having a bad day, and now you're telling me I'm detestable, and I'm not fit for doing any good thing. And Paul isn't calling out atheists. He's not saying, hey, if you follow another religion, here's the hypocrisy that I'm trying to point out in it. What he's doing is saying is if, if you claim to know God, if you claim that you follow him, that you believe in God, that the way that you live your life should reflect that. And it's really easy to say that we believe in God, but by the way that we are actually living, we are denying the statement that proceeds from our mouth. And today we're going to talk exactly about this. We're going to talk about believing in God, but not actually knowing God. See, when, um, there was a time when I, uh, before I had met Anna, my friend had just gotten engaged, and he said, hey, I want you to come to my engagement party. I want you to meet my fiance. And she's going to have some of her friends there and named off some of the friends that were going to be there. And Anna was one of the friends that he listed off. And now I believe that Anna existed when he told me about her. I didn't say, you know what, I don't believe in this Anna. That might be a perfectly fine belief for you. I believe that belief in Anna is actually a crutch for the weak-minded. But <laughs> that's okay. No, I just accepted that Anna was real, but the reality of her existence did not change my life whatsoever because I believed in her, but I did not know her. Believing in something and knowing something are two completely different things. She existed, she's existed since 1982 when she was born, 
but her existence had no bearing on my life as long as I didn't actually know her. My belief in Anna did not change me. And that's where some of us are today with God. Some of us believe in God, but we don't know him. And belief isn't enough. Belief will never change your life. It says that the demons believe in God. It says that they believe that Jesus is the Son of Man and they tremble at his name. But I think we can all agree that their belief in who God is and that his reality is there doesn't mean that they're living a life that is producing godly character and making a positive difference in the world that's around them. Because the belief in God isn't enough. The vast majority of the 74% of Americans that claim to believe in God, that's where they find themselves. It's where we probably all found ourselves at one point, is that we believe in God, but it has no bearing on our life because we don't actually know this God that we believe in. It's cultural Christianity. Most people say, I'm a Christian. Why? Well, I'm an American. And that's just a part of our culture. It's a Christian heritage, so I'm a Christian. Or maybe it was your parents or your grandparents were Christian. And so you say, yeah, I'm a Christian now. And it might mean that maybe you go to church on Christmas or Easter, or you celebrate the birth of Jesus through materialism, uh, which is an odd thing in and of itself. But it hasn't become something that's begun to shape and change who you are. It's not a part of the reality of your life. It's just a belief that you have. And in 1 John chapter 2, it says this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. And so what it's saying is that if you claim that you know God, but the way that you live your life goes against everything that he's commanding, then you don't really know God, you just believe in him. And that's not saying that you have to follow all of God's rules as a way to get to know him. Uh, what happens is you get to know God and that stirs up a desire inside of you to begin to follow his commands. My wife hates it when I leave my clothes on the, on the ground next to the bed instead of putting them in the hamper. So to develop a love for my wife, I didn't say, I'm going to win her affection for me and her approval. I'm going to earn her love by putting my clothes in the hamper. That's not how it works. Because I love my wife, I'm willing to inconvenience myself and do something as ridiculous as picking my clothes off the ground and putting them in the hamper. But it's my love that propels me to obedience. I follow the commands of God because I know him. And that doesn't mean that you're going to follow it perfectly all the time. In this whole political season, it's been all the, a real Christian couldn't support this, a real Christian couldn't do that, a real Christian would do this. And we all get mad and we're trying to say, who are all the real Christians based on the way that it is that we voted in our political policies and stuff like that? Or you start looking at some like, hmm, PG-13 movie? Do you think that one's kind of pushing the edge there a little bit? And our movie, oh my goodness, Sinner. Like, you are in the flames of hell itself right now. This isn't a way to be judgmental. It's not a form of legalism that we have. We're all going to fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. You know what marks and defines a Christian? Is that we're hypocritical. It's that we're fallen. It's that we are going to mess up a thousand times. It's that we are in need of the grace and the mercy of Jesus in our lives. But because of his power inside of us and because of a love in our hearts for him that propels us to obedience to his commands, we keep getting back up and we keep pursuing Jesus. We keep repenting of our sin and calling out again and again saying, God, have mercy on me. Strengthen me. Empower me to overcome this issue of sin in my life and every day reveal to me more how it is that I can be obedient to what it is that you've spoken to me. Because every day I continue to realize more areas in my life of where I need transformation. 
You might get to the end of the day like, man, I did a really good job. I have really been obedient to what God, what God called me to. That means tomorrow you're going to wake up and he's going to show you this whole other level of obedience that he's calling you to. You never get to the end of this race until you get to the other side of eternity. But you stay in it. What's the whole point behind this is if you say that you know Jesus, but you don't actually follow his commands, it's not your desire to follow the commands of Jesus. I'm not saying you're not going to mess up every now and then, but if you just don't care about what it is that Jesus says to you, then you're a liar. You don't really know Jesus, because if you did, if you knew how great his love was, if you had a love in your heart for him, you would put yourself in a place of obedience to him. And there's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And I think a lot of times the issue that we have isn't that we need to know more about God, it's that we need to be obedient with what we do know about God. It's really easy just to collect knowledge, to know things about God. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus is saying that there are going to be people who miss heaven and they're shocked by this because they know a lot about God. They've read their Bibles, they've, you know, they've tithed, they served in church, they were doing good things, but they never got to the place of where it went beyond a head knowledge, a belief in God to actually knowing him and knowing who he is. And that's what this is all about. This is, what Christianity is, is that we've been adopted into the family of God. It's relational. We have a heavenly father. We have brothers and sisters that we're united with together. And if we go through all of this just trying to do and trying to do without ever knowing God, then we've missed out on everything that God's called us to. And we need to do, but we do because of what God has first done inside of us. Knowledge of God isn't enough. You have to know him. I know a lot about Abraham Lincoln. I love reading biographies on him. I love one of my favorites recently is The Wit and Wisdom of Abraham Lincoln. That guy was hilarious, at least in print. I don't know about in person, because though I can know a lot about him, I will never know him. It's impossible for me to know Abraham Lincoln. One of my heroes of the faith, John Wesley, I love it that he was a priest and he's doing everything he can to acquire more knowledge about who God is. Uh, he's, you know, he's a pastor, he's traveling, he's doing mission trips. He goes to Georgia uh, from England and he's trying to lead Native Americans to Jesus and he fails absolutely miserably at this. And he's on his way back to England after a terrible trip and there's this huge storm that's going on and he's freaked out. He thinks that he is about to die and he notices this other group of people who are sitting there and they're singing songs to Jesus. And they're calm. They have joy in the midst of this horrible storm that is scaring him to death. He is scared to die. And he asks them, he, he begins to talk to them. He's like, what is wrong with you people? And they tell them about their faith in Jesus and their relationship with him. 
And John Wesley says, that's what I want. And he goes and he joins the, with the Moravians. A hundred-year prayer meeting that goes 24-7. This is how much the Moravians wanted to know Jesus. Was that for over a hundred years, they had a prayer meeting that was going 24-7. And John Wesley goes and he's with them and he learns not just about God, but he begins to know God. And he writes in his journal, and my heart began to become strangely warmed. And everything changed for him in that moment. And I think that's where a lot of us find ourselves. That's where I found myself growing up in church. I grew up in church, and I was there every Sunday. Uh, and I was there sometimes on Wednesday nights when they had stuff going on, missions conferences. I was always there, youth group. I didn't like going to youth group, but my parents made me go to youth group and to Sunday school. And I was in Christmas plays where we had to sing musicals that were terrible and horrible, and I always got to be the shepherd without any lines. But I was always in church. My parents made me tithe when I was a kid. I mean, I was there. I was serving. I was greeting. I was working in the nursery. I, was, I knew a lot about God. I was doing a lot for God, but I completely missed out on knowing him. And I had that experience one day of where my heart was strangely warmed. And it went from just knowing God in my head to knowing him in my heart. And then following Jesus wasn't a burden anymore. It was my delight. If I never got to the point of where I began to know Anna, just dating her and sending her gifts and little love notes would be the most tedious thing if I never met her, if I didn't have a relationship with her. Picking my clothes up off the floor would drive me insane. I know that sounds stupid to you, but it's a big deal to me. <laughs> but because I love her, my obedience becomes my delight. And disobedience becomes grief in my own heart. Because I want to be obedient to the one that I love. We have to get to the place of where we know Jesus. Not just know about him, but where we know him. And then secondly, uh, some people believe in God and they know him, but they don't know him well. Now, after I met Anna at the engagement party, uh, it, was, it was really pretty crazy because I'm there at the engagement party, I meet Anna, and sparks are flying. But it's not between us, it's between the girl I actually like that I'm talking to on the phone. So, uh, I, I don't know if she knew that or not, but now she does because she's here. But five months later, we went out on our first date. And that began the process of getting to know each other. And I remember shortly after that, I'm at her house and her cousins are there. I'm getting to meet the family and all of that stuff. And we don't know each other well. Some people say, you know, it just felt like we had always known each other. Well, it might feel that way, but you don't always know each other. And you don't know each other that well. So we're sitting there, and she and her cousins are talking, and they're talking about something like, oh, that's so Dale. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, you know, like dirty, kind of gross, like the kids named Dale are always like that. And I'm like, my middle name is Dale. And they're like, no, you're joking with us. No, and I'm like, no, seriously, my middle name is Dale. I'm like, no way. And that's why I pull out my driver's license. And uh, my name it really is Dale. And they're all like, oh. <laughs> and I had the choice to be offended. Like, how can you think this about me? How can you make fun of this name, which I don't even like, but uh, nobody else makes fun of my name that I don't like because it's a family thing. There are generations of us in my family with the middle name Dale. And my son, just to make sure he never gets a big head and thinks he's better than me, I gave him the middle name Dale, too. <laughs> but I tell him it's cool, but it's not. 
And I could have been offended because we didn't really know each other, right? We didn't even know each other's middle name. And this is where so many times we kind of get stuck in our relationship with God. It's we know God, we've had this moment of where we've been introduced to him, we recognized our sinfulness and that Jesus is our salvation and so we repent of our sin and we're like, God, I want to know you. There's some sparks that are flying. You feel like you've known each other forever but you don't know Jesus very well yet. And what can happen in this area is there's a great opportunity for offense in your heart. This is a dangerous time in your relationship with Jesus is when you don't yet know him very well. It says this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And what Paul's talking about is that before you became a Christian, he said before you knew God, and then he qualifies like, well, it's not really that you know God that well right now, but he knows you. But you used to be a slave. There were things that you were doing in your life. There were sin issues that you were struggling with that were holding you in bondage. And Jesus came and he freed you from the power of these things so that you can now live the way that God's called you to in freedom and in life and in liberty. But you want to go back to that old way of life. Why do you want to do that? And the reason for it's really simple. is you know If you've been a Christian for a long time and you look back at the old life that you used to have, and you think about like, you know, like the party scene and like sleep with who you want to and drinking and taking whatever you want to and being greedy and selfish and hoarding things and, and gossiping and slandering. And after you've been a Christian for a long time, you look at that and you're like, oh gosh, that life was terrible. Like I would never want to go back to that. But when you're a new Christian and you don't know Jesus very well, that still sounds awesome. That was a lot of fun when you did these things, and now you're trying to, you know, break free of these things that you used to do. But it's a lot like any of you guys that have dogs. Uh, one of the things, you have a dog, and they, they just have these desires to do disgusting things. <laughs> right? Like, you, you go by a dead animal, and you're like, oh, gosh, that smells awful. Oh, and what's a dog like? They're like, oh, my gosh, I just want to roll on that. Oh, please let me off my leash. I just want to roll. And you're holding them, and they're, you're trying to pull it back. Like, no, don't go rolling it. Or then they'll, they'll roll in it, and they'll eat it, and it grosses you out, and then at night they'll throw it back up. <laughs> and you're like, you stupid dog, I told you not to do this. And then you go in to get the stuff to clean it up, and you come back, and you're like, where is, oh, oh no, oh, why would you eat that again? And you're trying to train your dog, you're like, I'm freeing you from this desire to roll in dead things. I'm trying to train you not to eat your own vomit because it's disgusting. But dogs want to do that. If you ever take them off the leash, you can't train that out of a dog because it's what they desire. Unless that desire is somehow taken out of them, they will continue to do that. They will continue to return to it. And we do the same thing, is that we see these things that are dead spiritually. Things that are going to bring death to us, disgusting things that will violate us and God's call in our life. And when we're new Christians, we're just like, oh man, that looks so good. That desire is still inside of us. And if you never grow in your relationship with Jesus, if you just know him but don't know him very well, then what's going to happen is you're going to be fighting these desires every moment of your life. You're just going to look back at the old life that you have and the things that you used to do, and you're like, oh my gosh, it still looks so fun. Remember when we used to do that and how incredible it was? 
And other people in Christians 50 years are like, Why don't do this? That's gross. But you're like, but it's so fun. Like, it looks so good. And if you never grow in your relationship with Jesus, because what happens is as you grow in your relationship with Jesus, your heart is transformed. The desires that you have inside of you begin to change. To where you look at the dead things and you're like, oh, gross, I don't, I don't want that anymore. Or if you did roll in it a little bit, you're like, oh, what have I done? Why did I roll in this again? I don't ever want to do that again. But when you're just a brand new baby Christian and you don't know Jesus that well, that temptation is so strong. Those things look so good that you used to do. And the temptation is just to go back and to re-engage in all of the things that Jesus has set you free from. And it says that, that then you become a slave to it once again. If you want to really live the life that Jesus has called you to, if you want to live a life where you can resist the temptation of the enemy, because he's going to bring temptation, there are things that every one of us did before Jesus that are appealing to our hearts. And we need God to change our hearts so that we can overcome those temptations. But that doesn't happen until we grow in our relationship with Jesus to this point where we know God, or we believe in God, and we know him intimately and we serve him wholeheartedly. And this is kind of the third level. It says in Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary. I have gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting my hands up to you in prayer. And this is the point in your relationship with God of where you've gone from just believing in him but not knowing him. It's where you've moved past uh, knowing him but not knowing him very well to now you're saying, God, you're not just a God. You're not just the God. You are my God. You're the one that I want. You have become my desire. The greatest desire that I have in all of this world is to see your glory to know who you are, to encounter you in my times of worship and prayer. Now, before you were a Christian, you just became a Christian, do you ever look at people that are like raising their hands in worship and dancing? And I won't do that because I love you all. But, uh, and you're like, what is wrong with that person? You ever laugh at them? Because it made no sense to you, right? I mean, maybe if we were at a concert or maybe at a U of M football game that they didn't lose, uh, we'd be going crazy. But when we see people worshiping like that, we're like, what is wrong with that? I can never see myself doing that. But what happens is over time, that love develops for Jesus in your heart. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself like, I want to go to a night of worship. Like, I just want to worship the Lord. I want to raise my hands. I want to get together with other people, and I want to pray with them. And that seems crazy and like a discipline for a lot of people, but you can go so far in your relationship with God that this becomes the desire of your heart. Where you say, Jesus, I want you more than anything else in all of this world. I've seen what the world has to offer me, and it pales in comparison to who you are. It's not just that I want what you have for me, but Jesus, I want you. I want to know you, God. I want to know you even more. And one of the great things that I love about marriage is that I have this beautiful wife, Anna, who I just continue to learn more about. I know her. I know her better than anyone else in the entire world knows her. And I continue to learn more about her every single day of my life. I will never get to the end of knowing my wife. I will never know everything there is to know about her. I will never get to the place where I'm like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm kind of tired of knowing her. 
every day. When it comes to Jesus, we will never exhaust the limit of knowing him. Every day we can come and dig deeper into saying, God, I want to know your goodness even more this day. This is my prayer every morning, is God, I want to love you, I want to know you more today than I did yesterday. And it's become the greatest joy in my heart. When I was a kid, the greatest joy in my heart was finding a whole bag of Skittles without any parental supervision. Like, that was the best thing that could ever happen. I would have sold my soul and my sister down the river for a bag of Skittles and no parents around. And those desires change over time. You know, there's other things that you want. Maybe you want, like some people are like, I just want to get married so bad, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or some people are like, I just want a car, or I just want this career, or I just want whatever it might be. And there becomes this greatest desire that you have in your life. You can have that with Jesus to where he becomes the greatest desire that you have in this world, where it's not just a discipline to pursue him, but it becomes your delight to pursue him. You know, the greatest thing, I love that as a Christian, that Jesus has set me free from bondage and from sin. I love that there's a purpose for my life. I love that God uses me to bless other people. I love my family. I love my kids are incredible. I love this church. There are so many things that I love. But I love knowing Jesus more than any of those things. And it's not even close. And I'm not saying that to sound like a bad parent. Like, don't you love your kids? Yes, I love my kids. But I love the one who gave me those kids even more. And that's the place that we're going to. I love how David wrote this in Psalm 910. He says, those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. He says, those who know your name. Now, the name that you use in talking to someone says an awful lot about how you know them and the relationship you have with them. When someone calls me on the phone and they say, uh, is Mr. Brown there? I'm like, yeah, let me get him. Hang up, because it's a telemarketer. No one that knows me well calls me Mr. Brown, especially on the phone. There are some people who call me Pastor Jeremy. That's what most of you do. And that means that you know me, that there's some level of familiarity that you have with me. You've probably heard all my story three times if you've been coming for a little while. Uh, you know me, and there's a relationship that exists between us. There are some people that call me Jeremy. My close friends, they don't call me Pastor Jeremy. That'd be weird. Uh, like my best friend, Ben, I'm not like, hey, lawyer Ben, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing well, Pastor Jeremy. You know, it's just Ben and Jeremy. Because there's a, a more familiarity, there's a greater closeness and a bond that we have from being best friends since we were in third grade. Uh, there's a couple of people that call me son. And that speaks to the relationship that I have with my parents. There's something special, there's something that's unique about that, that only my parents have the ability to call me son. I'm called daddy by my two kids. And what that means is that We've, we've wrestled a lot, we've had tickle time, we've changed diapers. Well, I've changed diapers, they haven't yet. That's hopefully about 50 years from now. Uh, but <laughs> it's coming, kids. Paybacks. Man, that, the spiritual wheels of this train just fell off, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it speaks to a different kind of relationship and a closeness that we enjoy. There's uh, some people that call me germ. That means that you were my friend when we were in middle school and we did some stupid stuff together. And then there's only one person who calls me pumpkin. And that's my wife. If any of you try it, it's not going to have the same effect. <laughs> and I don't know why she calls me pumpkin, but she does. 
And it speaks of a, a closeness and a special relationship that she and I have. Well, this is my question for you. Is what do you call God? What's the name that you know for God? Is it, are you one of those people like, oh, mighty creator, oh, oh, great spirit? You don't know Jesus. If you knew Jesus, you wouldn't call him, oh, creative, mighty, great spirit from all times, everlasting being. That's not how you talk to people that you know. You call him the big guy or the man upstairs. Eight pounds, six ounce, blue-eyed baby Jesus. What is it that you call him? You call him Savior? You don't call him Savior until you recognize that he's the one that saves you. Do you call him provider? If you do, that means that there's been a time in your life where you needed provision and he was that provision for you. Do you call him friend? Because if you call him a friend, then that means that you know him in the way of the time when you needed a friend, you found that you had a friend in Jesus. Do you call him redeemer? Because that means that you recognize there was a time when you needed redemption and he was the one who came and he did that. Or restorer. Have you found the restoration that is in God? Have you called him your protector, your comforter, your shelter? I learned to call God my healer. Because I used to know in my mind that he was a God who healed, that other people called him a healer. But when I found myself needing healing in my life, I learned God and his love in a whole new way. And now that I call him healer, you call him father. Jesus said you call him daddy. Because that's the closest relationship that there is between the father and the child. And you will never call him father with any amount of conviction in your life until you get to that place of where you recognize how good his love is for you. And that he looked on you as a child who had gone astray and he came to you and he adopted you into his own family and that the greatest desire of any parent is to know their children and to be known by them. And this is what God is calling us into. And ever since I made that decision that I was going to follow after Jesus, that I was going to know who God is, he has changed my life. And now he's transformed me and, and I'm more like him now. My heart breaks for the things that break the heart of God. When I look around and I see injustice, when I see hurting, when I see pain, when I see grief, it breaks my heart because it breaks the heart of God. I have a hunger in my life for his presence, something that I never wanted before over I hated reading my Bible and I hated worship time and, and prayer and all of these things. I hated going to church, but now it's like, this is, I'm hungry for your presence, God. I want to know you more. I just want to be in your presence, a tangible expression of your presence, God. I, I had a generous heart. I mean, I was like, if I found a penny, I'd fight you to the death for it. And God's changed my heart of where now I love giving things away to people. That was the work of God inside of me. That was not my nature. He made it so that I grieve over sin. My own sin. When I fall short, when I know that I'm breaking the heart of God, when I see sin in the life of other people, it's not to judge them or to condemn them or how could you. It's that I hurt for them because I know what that's going to produce in their life and I want to see Jesus come and bring freedom and healing to them. He's made it so now the fruit of the Spirit is being born inside of my life. He's put a desire inside of me to care for the poor, to have compassion for the downtrodden. 
These are all things that Jesus does in our hearts. It's not something that you can create on your own. It's what God does in you as you begin to know him and know him more. And if you want a life like this, what you need to know is that right where you are, God can begin the transformative work inside of your heart to make you like him and that you can know God's love, you can know his acceptance, his approval, his forgiveness. You can know God as a father. And he says this, that when you seek me, you will find me. We just have to become a people that decide that, God, I'm going to seek after you. I want you. I want to know you. I don't want to just believe in you anymore, God. I want to know you intimately and serve you wholeheartedly. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says this. This is Paul, and this is one of the first prayers that I ever memorized after I gave my heart to Jesus. It says in verses 17 through 19, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And the prayer that Paul's praying over the church and the prayer that I pray over myself still and over all of you is that God open our eyes to see how good you are. God, open our eyes. God, would you put a desire inside of our hearts to seek after you, to know you, to make knowing you the greatest pursuit, the greatest desire in all of our life because what we have found in you is worth so much more than anything else. I'm in the song, it says, you can have this whole world, but give me Jesus. It's a real simple math equation. If you have everything, but you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. If you have nothing with Jesus, you have everything. This morning, as we close in prayer, this is what I want to ask you. Have you just believed in God without knowing him? this morning if that's been the way that you've been living your life he's speaking to your heart right now and he's calling to you and he's telling you that I've been pursuing you I've been revealing myself to you even in this moment he's speaking revealing because he wants you to know him he's calling to you and saying turn away from the old life turn towards me I'll forgive you. I'll bring you into this family. You will know me like you can't even imagine you will know me. And I will give you a life that you can't even dream of. Or maybe you've made that decision, but you haven't progressed beyond that. But you want to know God wholeheartedly. You want to know him intimately. And that's what he's speaking to you this morning is that it's possible. Just seek after me. Make me your number one pursuit. Make me your greatest desire. And you will find me and you will know me more than you ever imagined you could. 
Maybe you've been pursuing Jesus, but you just want more. And that's, I think, where so many of us are at, is we need more of God. We need more of who he is because we've tasted, we've seen his goodness, and we want more and more of it. This morning, if that's any of those of you, then just join me in praying and seeking after God. Father, thank you that you came to us that you pursued us to such an extent that you gave up the glory of heaven, that you came, that you died on the cross for our sins. You were dead, buried in the grave, but on the third day you rose again, proving that you truly are God and giving us the hope of the future. And Jesus, we believe in you and we ask that you would forgive our sins, God, that you would forgive all of the other things that we've pursued more than you, all of the times that we've been tempted to go back to that old life and become slaves to sin again. God, would you forgive us for the times that we were just content knowing about you, but not really knowing you. And God, this morning, would you do something new inside of our hearts as we turn our hearts towards you, as we declare that you are our desire? God, would you stir up and fan into flame a passion inside of our hearts? God, would you open our eyes that we could see your goodness, God, that we could see how great you are? In Jesus, in radiant church, in every one of our hearts, would you stir up a hunger for you that can't be quenched by anything, God, a desire to pursue you, to be obedient to everything that you're speaking to us, God, all motivated out of a love inside of our hearts. Jesus, transform our hearts. Transform our minds. Renew us. Make us like you this morning. And as we seek after you, We thank you for that promise that we will find you, that we will see your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to continue to worship and continue to posture your heart before the Lord to receive from him and stir up that desire for him.